A quick note to listeners before we begin, we had some audio issues with Muriel's microphone that surfaced partway through this interview, so you might hear a little bit of distortion on her line after about the 20-minute mark. You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is poet Muriel Leung. She is the recipient of fellowships to Kundeman, Vona Voices Workshop, and the Community of Writers, and she's been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Her writing can be found in The Baffler, Cream City Review, Gulf Coast, The Collegist, and The Fairy Tale Review, among others. Her first book of poetry, Bone Confetti, won the 2015 Noemi Press Book Award. Of it, one reviewer said, it made the words into a bell, and the bell made me stop what I was doing. Her newest collection, Imagine Us the Swarm, will come out on May 25th, and it's the topic of our conversation today. In it, Muriel contemplates the death of her own father and reconciles the family history of violence and generational trauma across intersections of Asian American, queer, and gendered experiences. Muriel Leung, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much, Clara. I'm really excited. I also um, love that I, you're, you're doing the air quotes <laughs> that <laughs> no one can see <laughs> around family history, which is like accurate because that's exactly... Um, it's complicated. Thank you for making that visible <laughs> to the audience. I'd like to start by doing something that I, I don't often do, which is asking you to describe your work, because it is so unlike anything else I've read. It's it's not just the way that you play with typography and white space or the annotations you use. It just it feels almost like its own unique form. So what are you looking to create when you write? Imagine Us a Swarm, for me, you know, started out as um, writing traditional essays, um, you know, a fairly like linear narrative. And I just realized that the breadth of what I wanted to explore just couldn't fit that form. And so what came out of it were these, you know, I call them essays in verse. You can call them lyrical essays. You can call them, some of these are more prose poems. I mean, they're, they're essentially, you know, hybrid forms throughout the book. And there's sort of seven texts within this book that are kind of constellated and each one explores some different aspect of Asian American identity from personal history with mental health to larger collective histories, um, especially dealing with Asian American histories of racialized labor. Um, It's essentially trying to, to capture everything, which I saw you know, like a very distinct connection between all these various aspects of Asian American identity. And I just felt like it all had to be there, but also it has to be somewhat legible in some way, at least to me, to the person who's reading it. Um, And I wanted to find a way in which this, a book could, could hold that complexity, but also be something that you can, you can hold that makes something tangible. And so that's the focus of my book is, is to highlight the experiences of Asian American history, um, my personal history, and especially the experiences of the women and femmes in my family and in my community who are especially impacted by a lot of, a lot of the forces that I explore throughout the book. When you're creating a collection, of course, brings a narrative into life, uh, whether intentionally or not, though I think usually, at least a little bit intentionally. What is the narrative that you are looking to create in this book? What's the through line? In thinking about how to order the the different essays and verse in this book, um, I suppose it started off with, you know, this is to live several lives, you know, and this is the long essay and verse that, you know, explores 
my relationship with my father and sort of how I came to understand labor from an early age and how there is this, you know, long history of racialized labor in the U.S. in which a lot of Chinese immigrants uh, started off in the U.S. working in very specific industries and the restaurant being one of them. And for my father, being someone then, you know, who started working in the restaurants in the U.S. in the 1970s and then came to own his own restaurant later in life, you know, had always had this notion that, you know, if you work hard, you can succeed. Mm -hmm. And he was very much committed to this idea of the American dream. And that's very much the, the, the sort of model minority myth that, you know, a lot of Asian Americans are sold on. And I wanted to really explore that and and sort of consider the humanity of of that pressure that he felt yeah. and, and how eventually I think everything, all of this, you know, made him very sick. And it causes me to then reflect on my own life and how I consider labor and just even how I think about the body and um, the toll that this sort of pressure has on Asian American bodies just through and through. And this pressure is that, and that weight is something that I, you know, explore in the the, the following essays and verse where I, I, I think through, you know, what does it mean to be a body that um, people are scared of, that people want to punish, mm. that people want to violate because they, they think they can. And all the vulnerabilities of that, the the wrestling with ideas of then what does justice mean, finding a place for that anger, um, and and to feel like that that is justified and that you can have that, then finally arriving at the last section, which are a series of poems that are untitled but are part of this section that I call When I Imagine All the Possibilities of the Swarm. And each of these pieces begin with the refrain suppose, suppose. And it's 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 a way of sort of, I guess, imagining a different kind of future for the things that we can't change, that I can't change. It's just trying to to imagine what would it look like if this happened another way? How can we reinvent these moments? You know, almost like like a speculative tool. Like how can we how can we alter our past? Like with just uh, the sheer ability of our imagination, our will, and you know, our collective desire to to be free of these these painful histories. And then, what do we what do we learn in the end? In the end, is that it is very frightening to to do this alone. And um, mm-hmm. you know, and this is where we kind of come full circle. You know, we start off with thinking about. Um, labor and the loneliness of that labor and that experience of being in this country and feeling torn between um, the pressures to to belong, but also knowing that your experiences will always um, lay outside of that. And then, yeah, the end is just, okay, but we still need each other. What can we do now, you know? I think there's two things that you mentioned that I kind of want to pick up on. So one is this idea that you just were talking about, that there's this huge pressure to conform and to belong and to to sort of negate yourself in all of these ways that bring you closer to, uh, air quotes again, uh, you know, America and white culture. 
But also doing that is inherently isolating and lonely. So you're not reaping the rewards that are sort of promised you by doing that confirmation or that uh, sort of conformity. I found that really fascinating thread going through as you're talking about all these pressures, the pressure to work, the pressure to, to try to find ways to belong. At the same time, loneliness is sort of weaving its way through all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to approach it with a sort of sympathetic look. You know, these are, when I think about, you know, my familial history, there are people who've passed that I just recollect, you know, through memory. It feels almost unfair to, to force a certain reading on it. And the only thing I can do is to just imagine how when you're put in a situation where you have one or two options, you know, in order to survive, what do you do? I think in in the history of race in the U.S., um, which has like heavily been, you know, st- structured along like a black and white dichotomy of folks who identify as neither black nor white have to, you know, think about their identity in this liminal space. And then I think a lot of the assimilative practices of Asian Americans often, I think, turn to anti-Blackness in order to, to, you know, uphold these forces of white supremacy. And so we know, we know that this is what's socially and politically happening, but then, uh, but then emotionally and psychologically, I think that uh, assimilation that does it, it is a failed project to begin with. It is yeah. devastating and lonely. It you know you earn you earn approval you know perhaps on the surface and then what? Yeah, what's being approved of? How much of that is you? Exactly. You know um, the people I love. You know still suffer in the end. So if we can acknowledge that this project is flawed to begin with, then perhaps we just need to imagine a different kind of alternative. So what would that be for us? The other thing I wanted to pick up on was the way that you talk about bodies and particularly your body and and your father's body in this book, because so much of that failed project is, right, like you were talking about when people perceive your body as dangerous or as consumable, it sort of creates in you this, this desire to negate your body and to ignore it. And your father spent a long time not acknowledging his his cancer because he felt it might be something else and it was something he'd gotten used to ignoring it. I really felt for you and for him in that moment of how painful it must be to realize that you haven't seen something that is so deeply a part of you. Yeah, it's... In so many ways, it's it's exactly that. It's it's you know the writing of this project is also this really huge moment of introspection for me, where um, you know I can write about the people in my life, but I have to think about how this has impacted me and how I hold this the lessons um, that I've witnessed from from the people that I love who've passed, and especially for my father, and especially for even if we think about just now, you know with you know, everything happening in the pandemic and this pressure to be productive in this highly capitalistic way. I mean, we haven't learned our lesson, right? There's still more demand, even as people are literally suffering and dying out there. And I think about how that is part of the American project too. And, And so, 
you know, I, I think about this book and I think about what I've learned from it, which is, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with labor. I, f- I f- love feeling mm-hmm. satisfied about doing work that feels good. I love work that supports community and um, uplifts voices that, you know, are struggling to be heard. But at the same time, there has to be a limit. And I I don't think my father ever had that. And I think he tried to instill that sense of limitlessness to me. And um, I have to challenge that, you know, I, I can... You know, I can hold so much affection for who he was, but also acknowledge that in so many ways, um, the lessons he, he imparted were very flawed. I was thinking as you were talking about that of um, the part on page 15 where it says, is it work if it doesn't hurt if you like it? Are you allowed to like it, the work? If it hurts and you're not sure if you like it, is that also work? Mm. Yeah. What What did you think about that? <laughs> I mean, I, a lot of this resonates with me. Um, I am currently reading Can't Even, uh, which is the, the millennial burnout book about how, uh, how sort of forces of capitalism have conspired to really make the sort of millennials and Gen Zers even, like, we, we have no chance of escaping burnout in the way that previous generations might have. And... I think that's there's so much wrapped up in the way that we talk about work and the way that we sort of now in our commodification of work have come to treat it like it, it should be a calling and you should be passionate about it and that the passion means it's not about the money, <laughs> but also it's still constant. So I think that evoked a lot of things for me around um, just the way that like what work is <laughs> is changing. Yeah, I mean, even just, you know, thinking about early conversations and um, early in the pandemic about what does it mean to be Zooming from your own bedroom? (laughs) (laughs) And just like you're literally bringing work into your home space. There is no divide. Thinking about how um, digital technological platforms like social media operate today and how, you know, your own person is your brand, is your work so you can commodify yourself too. Um, your whole body is is sellable, and by participating in it, it is your implicit consent, you know, in the in this in these ways. And I do feel that that itself is a type of invisible work that we've we're only start only just starting to define or find language for. And I and I think digital technology is just evolving so fast that we're like, well, what is what is work? Um, does this does this yeah. feel good? we're constantly asking ourselves that and we look or looking to other people for answers. <laughs> and then oh, no one's, no one's figured anything out because I think that's exactly how capitalist productivity works is that it's always changing its shape and it's hard. It makes it hard to recognize in that moment, but all the more reason to, to keep asking. Right. Well, and I think it, it also encourages us to do that looking outward to, to try to figure out what's normal rather, rather than like what feels right within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was fascinated reading your notes at the end of this book by the way that you weave so many texts and ideas into your writing, which makes sense if it started as essays and sort of expanded out from there. There's direct quotations, there are clear references, retelling of other stories in the story of Lady Revenge, the Lady Revenge poems. And these are layered on top of your reflections about 
some very personal topics um, and personal experiences around death, violence, race, and healing. Do you feel like they contextualize those reflections or are they there to do something else? As an academic, currently I'm a PhD candidate at USC. You know, I, I think a lot about the political implications of citations and especially how infrequently a lot of women scholars, a lot of women of color scholars in particular, are not acknowledged for their intellectual work. And so we're, we're talking about work, right, throughout um, this conversation. And I do think that, you know, intellectual labor is one of those things that um, become erased. And so, you know, it, it could easily be, you know, I could easily um, have just like included them as an epigraph or something. But, but the truth is, is that their work has deeply influenced me. So why not cite the full passage within the body of the text? Because don't they deserve that space? For instance, like Leah Lakshmi Piyapsna Samara Sinha's work has really taught me so much about, you know, what does it mean to be queer Asian American person uh, in the world? And I still look to you know, her activism and her writing even now. And she she deserves more than a footnote, you know. She is a very much a part of that poem. So I, I, I really want to hold space for all these voices that that typically become um, erased through, through just, you know, our, through more traditional, like, citation practices in the world. Yeah, and I, one thing I found really interesting is that even even when the sort of physicality of the citations is that more traditional footnote, the footnotes in, say, the plural the plural circuits of tell that section, they are the majority of the actual text. So there's one or two lines and then a footnote that is one or two paragraphs. And there was something really evocative to me there about and I hope you'll forgive my <laughs> interpreting your work, but right, like it it felt to me like it's it's really making visible the mountain of history that's behind any single phrase that we might write. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that interpretation. Um yeah, it, it reminds me that when I was um, you know, an undergrad Jewish student, I would gloss through <laughs> a lot of the footnotes. Um in, in a lot of the texts I read because I just, I couldn't, you know, hold space for, you know, the, the primary text as well as the footnote. And now I'm just thinking about, you know, how do we read for information and what, how do we, you know, view what's important and vet what's not and, and what if, what if everything is vital and there's a purpose to, to everything and that's, and you have to read it all to understand the various la- layers, you know, and the footnotes definitely and the plural circuits of tell really uh, try to play with that intentionally. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program on being hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. right here at K-Squid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. 
If you're just joining me, my guest today is Pushcart Prize-nominated poet Muriel Leung, whose forthcoming book, Imagine Us the Swarm, explores the death of her father and the nature of his legacy. Your work is really personal, as we've sort of discussed a bit already. How does exploring your personal experiences in this way shape your understanding of them? I think I was initially so worried about how, I mean, I think all my work, you know, is obviously very autobiographical, but, you know, when I think back on my first book, Bone Confetti, you know, it was a, it was an entirely speculative landscape. Everything was highly figurative, you know, unless you've read interviews, you wouldn't know that it was, you know, a way of exploring personal grief and heartbreak. So in some ways, you know, things were a little bit protected then. And in this one, I didn't really, I didn't feel like I wanted to, not that, not that there's anything wrong with, with doing that in Bone Confetti, but I wanted to at least showcase the people that have influenced me in the forefront. And I wanted to do it in a way that feels like it, it's purposeful that the people that I, you know, talk about are represented with dignity and the complexity of their experiences are highlighted and um, for also my own voice to be heard too. It was an exercise in thinking about how do you write about ancestors and how do you represent them in this way where you can acknowledge the roles in which they've enacted, you know, harm or violence and or held certain systems of harm and how, you know, I have a certain responsibility then to alter the course of the thing or unlearning, I guess, the things that, you know, my previous generations have been taught, um, but to also acknowledge that a lot of my family made decisions, you know, in times of scarcity. And I also have to acknowledge that too, because I, I wasn't there. I wasn't you know, I wasn't impacted in the same way as they did. My experiences are different. Mm -hmm. So how can I think about their experiences compassionately while also not negating my own too? So I think this would be a good time to have you read a bit from the book so that we can ground our discussion in your actual words. Um, can you set it up for us first? What are we going to hear? So this is the first essay in verse that opens Imagine Us to Swarm, um, this is entitled, This is to Live Several Lives, and I will be reading the first half of the essay in verse right now. This is to Live Several Lives. Once, when I was very, very young, I studied the curious lives of bees, their steadfast and synchronous labor, thinking of what it means to be at once a colony and alone. A bee learns to become a malarian mimic dressed as some other creature with a deadlier poison. A bee who is sometimes a wasp, sometimes a stinging beetle, sometimes larger than its small self, each one working so hard to perform a sense of safety. Some nights I am thinking of the colony of my father and me and what the bees know to be true. To survive a history in the wild requires arduous labor of some effortlessly seeming toil as in I want to tell you about his commute. He smelled like leather and tobacco. He was a type of burning. He said yes often. 
The restaurant was a hole he fell into. Those nights I waited for him. When he was home, he was tired. That's all. Maybe I'm making this up. I can't remember. I asked my father once, do you ever get lonely? Did he answer? I set out to write a book about, but it was about. Instead, after he died, was all that was left. Let me posit this now, the book, a labor, a means to measure the contradictions of one's life against another. He wrote to me in a letter, you have to work hard. Your dad loves you. I am trying to be both a daughter, a ghost. In Ghostly Matters, Avery Gordon writes on the drive to narrate the history that hurts. It is about putting life back in where only a vague memory or a bare trace was visible to those who bothered to look. It is sometimes about writing ghost stories, stories that not only repair representational mistakes, but also strive to understand the conditions under which a memory was produced in the first place toward a counter-memory for the future. To write a book is to write into a future, and I am not ready. There was a time I worked so much I couldn't sleep. Barr said I was a dense bubble of worries. They pressed my body onto the bed and said, rest, rest, and it was like a game how awful I was at it. I would shoot up from the bed, out of their arms, back on the train, on the bus, to a faraway borough. I carried a suitcase with me, as if I was going somewhere that was not the job and not the hive. I left too soon. The house, the bed, the quiet weight of ours couch, where we were watching each other. They said, it's like you're a stranger. I don't know where this comes from. I know exactly where this comes from. We mimic the species that perform a certain ideal means of survival. I think it's funny that the book is not about bees at all. I wanted to write a book about Orpheus and Eurydice, how they lived and died and died again. How hellish discovering that the journey was not enough, even at its end, that impulse to look back, which is like admitting grief is a form of self-sabotage. And then she was ash. Another myth. My father swimming from mainland China to then British-occupied Hong Kong. When he was caught, he disappeared for a while into the field. One can say he worked there and discovered the body as an ox that could keep on even if the migration as a broken history we don't talk about. How do you write a, a history that is both yours and not yours, but an extension of an improbable future? in which the girl writes the book to become subject by way of sharing the labor of movement into this future of unknowns, what language we are making with our bodies, with work, with hard work. The story of labor is that it goes on. The hive hums its vacant sound. In the comb, the honey is slow and its obedience bruises me. Noise falls out, a frailty of many cells. My father, inside a cylinder of white smoke, wasn't efforted alive. He became harsh as a tyrant bell. 
I swear love is a hollow tomb, and the rest of us, we carried him. We were the tomb. Thank you for reading that. It's beautiful. You play quite a bit with the physical layout of words on the page, which some of that, I think, comes through in your reading, but of course people can't see it. In this first poem, you separate lines both with white space and with these sort of strings of periods that are hung at different places on the page. And each page in this interacts with those elements differently. Of course, right, like the idea of playing with physical layout and and punctuation is, is part of the tradition of poetry, but I think the way you make use of these elements is also really unique, and it makes this book feel especially like a a work of visual art in addition to poetry and essays. What's your process like when you're writing, and where do elements like those come into it? I think as someone who works across genres, I like to think of what does the text emotionally um, and psychologically want to guide you to do, and so... I think in thinking about um, like what, you know, even if I was writing, you know, I started to write an essay and I think, you know, what are some poetic forms I can borrow? Um, What are some elements of experimentation across genres that I can integrate into this work? Um, Because all of these tools are, are open, you know, for us to use. So in writing, you know, the this is to live several lives, for example, it started off as a pretty, you know, linear essay. Um, but I was, I, I had a, a friend, Vanessa Angelica Biodiel, who read this essay and was in its initial state and was like, you know, everything's really compressed here. It seems like you're, it, it feels really congested. So what are you, what are you trying to say exactly? And how can you say that better? And I, I think the best way to say it better is actually to disassemble a lot of its parts and to address, you know, what what is behind this essay? What is the, the true core of it? And it is the fact that there is silence, but in silence, there's also noise too. And so there is this balance then of white space and, you know, these, these ellipses, which to me are, are a way of of punctuating the space and saying that this is a quiet moment, but not quite because there's there's this buzzing that's happening. And in, in a work that is so much about loneliness and wanting to populate a life with, with so much meaning beyond what is prescribed for us, it felt right to, to think about the page as a way to acknowledge what's lost, but also we're all haunted, I think, the different... Um, people we've lost in our lives and also the lessons have imparted to us that, you know, we carry with us in, in our, in our present life. And so I think about, you know, experimentation and forum and the visual elements of this particular text as, as a way of, of doing that, to speak to the things that, you know, text alone cannot say. So let's talk then about ghosts because they come up a lot in your work, um, both here and I think in your previous collection as well. There's a line in this passage that you just read, I'm trying to be both a daughter and a ghost. What is the significance of, of ghosts to you there and elsewhere? Uh, growing up, you know, it, there's no, there's no um, direct translation, you know, for 
I, you know, the kind of ghostliness that I want to describe that I grew up with as part of, you know, Chinese cultural practices. We have, you know, a holiday once a year, um, Qingming, which is where we gather with extended family to visit the graves of um, the people we've lost in our family. And it, you know, we bring food, we bring drink, and then we, we burn these paper representations of things that we want to give to our, our ancestors in their afterlife. And we're encouraged to talk to, you know, our ancestors as if they're there. And so even at an early age, I was talking to my great-grandfather, to my great-grandmother, and my mom would say, you know, ask them ask them to help you do well in school. I was like, I don't know if they can do that. <laughs> I mean, can they? And I just like, is this like, is ghostliness then close to godliness like what are the what's the what's the capacity of our spiritual um connection here like what are our ancestors capable of and so i i think you know ghosts for me are, are not you know that the terrifying sort of western imagery you know that's often attached to them it's actually just you know the, the people who've passed that are still living alongside us that have left their imprints in our lives and you know in that one specific excerpt that you reference you know it's I think seeing myself as someone who is trying to fulfill dual obligations recognizing that you know this present role that I am is very much you know like at least socially obligated to these ideas of piety and you know filial piety and and being a good daughter, and at the same time, um, that that experience like makes it feel like I've, I'm someone who's passed, um, and that is possible, right? Based on how I've understood spiritual connections growing up, and and so, yeah, I think I think ghostliness just takes so many different forms um, throughout the book, and and to me, it's not it's not terrifying. It just it just simply is. I found your comment about or your your. You're sort of wondering about whether ghostliness is as close to godliness. Really interesting. Um, my background, my academic background is in linguistics. And there are many languages that have much more complex systems of animacy than English. In English, we really only have animate and inanimate. And so we have pronouns that are like she, he, and they. And then we have it, which is this sort of inanimate one. But in a lot of other languages, there are more complex systems and there are a, a large number of languages, well, maybe not large by some people's standards, but there are languages where ghosts are more animate than humans. And I find that, I, like, something about what you said really evoked that for me, this idea that ghosts are beyond human. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, I mean, if you really think about it, that's so, that's so true, because if, if in some cultures ghosts are able to traverse different planes, including this one, then they actually mm-hmm. occupy more knowledge of the world than, you know, our life on this earth, like currently, you know, those yeah. are living possess. And so there are things that we won't know unless we were ghosts too. And so I think it lends a certain power to, um, power to, and I, and I do agree that, you know, and especially in a lot of Western configurations of, ghostliness that you know animacy and inanimacy binary is so so real I think it, it can be so limiting too there was another line in that that I, I wanted to discuss that sort of that goes back to this question of labor it's the story of labor is that it goes on 
Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, it just means that in this particular passage, you know, I'm thinking a lot about how this idea of work is very much inherited. You know, this is very much a piece about intergenerational trauma. And so here's this idea of work that my father imparted, um, which is that you always go beyond your means. You have to work hard. And that is exactly what, you know, he wrote in his letter to me upon um very close to his passing, you know, the last, the last note he ever wrote from me was, I love you and you have to work hard. And I just, I think back on that and I just think that's so, that's so sad to me. Even up until the very last moments of his life, I think he still is very much committed to this belief that like everything's going to be okay, even though things are clearly not okay. And, um, I still perpetuate that in so many ways. Every time I betray myself, when I um, work beyond my means, when I perform labor that um, betrays my own identity, you know, in favor of those who are more privileged, you know, when I stay silent about certain things or I don't speak up. These are the ways in which um, I, I inherit that, that fear of what happened if um, I broke away from this, the mode that um, my father has learned his entire life. And, and it's very much ingrained in me because, you know, I was brought up by him. And, and to some extent, I did admire a lot of what he's gone through. But how, how to hold space for that but, and while also acknowledging that things have to be different this time around? Because I don't, I don't want that fate for myself and I don't want that for my community either. In Dear Intimacy of Theory... You reference bell hooks on healing and add your gratuitous sorrows falling out of a bell sleeve asking, how do I repair? Tell me about that. What does repair look like in the context of these kinds of intergenerational traumas? Yeah, and the Dear Intimacy poems are very much about thinking about the kind of academic or intellectual violence that happens, um, particularly in academic spaces and how theory has often been weaponized as a way to justify like um, ill-treatment of people. And so I'm thinking about how to approach theory in this more intimate way. And Bell Hooks is, is the, the most appropriate person I can think to, to reference here because so much of her work is about how do you make uh, theory accessible to all experiences because theory is essentially that and is generated often the, the, the most complex theories um, that are close to the heart are generated by people who have been most impacted so why do we pretend like this is something that is beyond us and so thinking about theory as a way of understanding that there are forces beyond our immediate life that impact the way that we move through this world and when we understand why the world is the way it is, and that there are certain things that um, are looming, but also we are agents in our life. It, it gives us some some tool to think about how do we move forward. Because I think if if I didn't know, for example, what capitalism was or racism was, I wouldn't have the terms to define. You know that the, the, the things that are happening to me are not because I didn't work hard enough or I wasn't good enough um, or that I wasn't, you know, that I am not worthwhile in this, in this world. Um, but that there are these forces that, 
you know, create the circumstances around me. And I, I'm not, I am, you know, oppressed by it, but I'm also not beholden to them. And this idea of repair is to say, okay, how can we, how can we think about new theories that will help us not just absorb, you know, these ideas and, 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 and just, just acknowledge them, but, but also just to imagine different, different ways the world could look in the future. Like what would, what would the theory of that look like? So tell me a little bit about that because you do have, have these, these futures that you imagine in those supposed poems. What are the sort of qualities you're looking for in those futures? I mean, I'm still, I'm still working it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's fair. I know. I mean, I, I, I was like, I, I could keep writing these poems and, but I have to stop at some point. It was a struggle to figure out like, okay, what do I want to impart? Not that I have an obligation to tie everything up neatly in a bow for everyone, but I do think that if I'm going to present all these complications to people, I, I should at least think about, okay, what, what have, I, what have I been trying to say all this time? And I think that last poem in the book for me is uh, that last section reference, references so much um, about celestial bodies. And I just, I kept thinking about like looking outward and beyond this immediate earth um, and just thinking about knowledges that are beyond us and I also am thinking, okay, if we start off with loneliness and being alone, then then wouldn't a a type of resolution be thinking about collective liberation that requires us to be truly truly understand where our traumas are coming from, um, while never while also not neglecting that there are people in this world who who need you there and also like want to connect with you on these experiences too. And, and so this, this last poem is very much inspired by, you know, I, I was, um, I finished this book, um, the, this very last poem in uh, Blue Mountain Center and my friend, Ido Aharoni, um, he was telling me the story about how, you know, um, one night in the forest, he, at Blue Mountain Center, it got really dark, and he was with a friend, and they were talking about another resident there, and they were talk- they were talking about the state of the world at that point and how desolate things are, and it got really dark. But there were these fireflies mm-hmm. that appeared, and they kind of provided this light to guide them back home. And I just I love that imagery so much, especially especially because it is this idea that this collective light um, allows for, you know, these people to move and find um, their way back in a certain way. And I just think, like, what if, what if we can imagine that, you know, as a metaphorically to me, this looks like the amassing of people who see, you know, a, a common goal to a freer, Future in which um, we have, we are actively working on on healing ourselves and our communities, and we find some way to come together um, across these differences. And I mean, that's just a metaphor, right? What what does it look like literally? 
I don't, I don't want to propose that there is a fixed way that that can look, but I think people already have some idea about what that looks like because it's happening right now. Um, the ways in which even now, you know, and as, um, with the vaccination rollouts, I think people are, are reimagining ideas of community and what does it mean to connect and care for each other. And, and so I think it is literally happening and I, and this metaphor is just something to hold in mind and heart, um, as a sort of guiding post, uh, as it does for me, you know, in these moments when I feel really great despair about the future, I just think, you know, what, how can I be true to myself in the swarm? And how can I truly believe that we deserve better in the future for us? The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters, Sunday evening at 6, on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Pushcart Prize-nominated poet Muriel Leung, whose forthcoming book, Imagine Us the Swarm, explores the death of her father and the nature of his legacy. There's something that I wanted to, I noticed in this book too, which is that there are a couple of places where you talk, say you talk about apologizing and, or the book talks about apologizing, but it, it's, it's not exactly an apology. Um, but there, especially early on, there's this part where you express this desire to apologize for writing a sad book. What purpose is that serving for you? Oh my gosh, I feel like my therapist just asked me that question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, is it, is it the it's, fist I mean, under the chin? <laughs> this is just will be good because I did this book is dedicated to my therapist. <laughs> um, hello, um, Dr. Hamide, if you're out there listening. Uh, you know, this I think apology is so hard. It's hard for me. It's it's hard for so many of us. Um I think if we're talking about repair, apology is just one of the many ways that can happen. And and sometimes, you know, the apology for me is kind of tongue in cheek too, because I think that there's there's a lot of heaviness out there and sometimes it's um requires a little bit of levity too. I I had this idea, you know, um this this running joke where I was like gonna start, you know, greeting card business where I was going to print cards that said things like, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings because of my unresolved trauma, (laughs) you know, and things like that, where it's like, okay, if we were to truly capture what that means in in a succinct way, what would that, what would that look like? And and of course I made that, when I made that joke um, on social media, I think some, that joke was lost and some people (laughs) were like, take accountability for your trauma. And I'm like, oh, that's the point of the joke is that (laughs) like people struggle to do that. And there's, there's a very, it's very hard to do that in a way where it's truly self-reflective. You know, I, I struggle, I struggle with that myself in terms of just the guilt I feel constantly about, um, you know, in writing this, I felt so much, I feel so much guilt about presenting, you know, trauma and, and this heaviness. I feel like I've said the word trauma so many times in within the book and then within, 
you know, talking about the book and um, I, f- I feel I feel bad when someone picks this up and, and it's like, oh, I wasn't sad before I read this and then I read this book and I feel sad. Bone confetti I felt, you know, bad about to sort of like deep dive into grief that it is. But it, it's only, you know, when I really think about it, it's only for for a moment. Like I, I, I know consciously that... Um, you know, people seek actively seek that out for catharsis. And very much I think, you know, that apology finds its footing in this in this book because I am like, okay, I understand this is heavy, but but if you trust me, I'm going to provide spaces of breath for you. And I want to remind you that um, you can stop at any time. And that um, I'm going to at times like focus on the individual and sometimes I'm going to to span out because I, I don't want it to be lost. I don't ever want there to be this feeling of stuckness for anyone reading it. I want, I want it to be an experience where you can feel like you can go from page one to the very last page and feel and feel, I think, a little bit lighter in the end. And I, I think it's really hard <laughs> for poetry to do that. I don't know if I've done that, but I'm trying. All of the themes that we've talked about in your book, they they circle around um, these big social forces um, and circle around, uh, and they, I think they push up against them, right? Like this is a, I would say, fundamentally anti-capitalist book. How do you think about those forces in your day-to-day life versus when you're writing? You mean like in terms of like I'm going to the market or <laughs> sure <laughs> on the lake? Um, yeah, I mean, I I I think in thinking about things like theory and praxis, for example, it's you know it's it's very much for me just a, if I'm if I'm making these critiques, I should also try to live my life accordingly too, to the best of my ability. You know, I I. I try to pace myself with work or I try to be very, I, I try to, you know, have have more generous expectations of other people, um, especially during this time. Um, I, I try to be forgiving, you know, if deadlines are not met or, um, or create opportunities, you know, and if I'm asking someone to, to do, to do labor, you know, to make sure that they're paid for it especially writers, you know, and um, it doesn't always happen neatly. You know, I, I think, you know, I get frustrated all the time or I become heavily depressed because the things don't feel like they're changing. Um, you know, I, I think the theories are there as, again, like guideposts, but I think our actual lived experiences are so much more complicated. Like I can tell myself, like, I'm going to go on a walk and meditate today. And then I realize I hate meditation. <laughs> and it makes it deeply anxious. Um, but but I should try, you know. I think I think we're all just trying and um and and that kind of um along like giving myself permission to be kind to myself is, is also part of the work and helps me be, be kind to people too. What gives you hope? I'd love to answer. I, I'll answer that question, but I also want to hear your answer too. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, um, 
I think those moments where people sort of break free from the the constant momentum of you know productivity and and where, where someone says like, hey, like I still will love you if you never write another book ever in your life, you know, or making the decision to like leap depart from a career path that you know one's been. Uh, working so so long for in order to imagine a different way in which like work can have meaning um, for someone's life. Um, when I see people speak people speaking up, you know, um, about injustices in in the world, and I feel when I see people being vulnerable and um, telling their truth, and um, and when people you know express themselves with such clarity. Um, about their experiences, especially if it's an experience that's like marginalized and not not frequently heard in the world. I think poems, art um, that people are making during this time to have really given me a lot of hope and select like cut videos, memes, <laughs> <laughs> give me hope um, when other people send me their pet uh, pet stories that gives me hope too. What about you? What what gives you hope? I think community in general, community, seeing community care. Um, I was talking to a friend today and uh, I asked how she was and she said that she was having, that she felt like she was having a breakdown in a way that felt out of control. And that weirdly gave me hope because she was being honest about it. So I think I think that's a lot of it is seeing people care for each other and make room for other people to care for them. Yeah. Yeah. So true. I think that's a great place for us to end. So Muriel Leung, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Muriel or to pre-order a copy of Imagine Us the Swarm, visit her website at murielleung.com. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. Join me next month for a conversation with San Francisco's own Ethel Rohan about her new collection of short stories in the event of contact. 